This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 88, January 9, 1985. This morning I'd like to begin with a discussion of a very important book, just published recently. As a matter of fact, in the area of political thought, I would rank it alongside of Helmut Schuch's book, Envy, and Roland Huntsford's the New Totalitarians. This book, published in 1984 by Doubleday and Company, is Michael Voslensky, V as in Victor, O-S-L-E-N-S-K-Y. The title, Nomenclatura, N as in North, O-M as in Mary, E-N-K-L-A-T-U-R-A. Nomenclatura, the Soviet ruling class published at 1995. Now, this book begins before the revolution and brings us up to the present point, uh, uh, time in terms of what has happened, what is the meaning of the Soviet regime. He begins by calling attention to the fact that Lenin was a very different Marxist than those who preceded him. He was not interested in Marxism as a theory, as an economics, or as anything except a revolutionary ideology which could be used. It suited his own cynical, revolutionary, and atheistic tastes. So, as the author says, to Lenin it was not a matter of principle, but a useful tool. Now, with this perspective in mind, Lenin turned against all the old-line uh, socialists, communists, Marxists, and damned them all as romantics, as utopians. He called instead for a professional revolutionary, a man without principle, a man who is dedicated to destruction. Anything else Lenin dismissed as amateurism. In fact, he said in 1922 at the 11th Party Congress, and I quote, relying on firmness of convictions loyalty, and other splendid moral qualities is anything but a serious attitude in politics." Unquote. So, what Lenin wanted was a group of professionals, a revolutionary mafia, as the author says, in which everything was to be based on a conspiracy against the world and a mutual trust within. Funds came, he says, from two sources, one from expropriation, the other from bank robberies. The second source was capitalists, Russian and foreign, who gave heavily and, by the way, are still doing so. So he says, flat out, and I quote, the proletarian revolution was subsidized by capitalists, unquote. Now, these professionals took power 
because they wanted power. This was their goal. They did not care about the common people, they despised them. The revolution was fought in the name of the people, in the name of the proletariat. But they were just to be used, to be milked, and to be slaves. Then, he says, what developed was the nomenclatura, and the nomenclatura eliminated the professional revolutionaries. Stalin's nickname applied to him in the early years of the revolution and the regime until he seized power was Comrade File Cabinet. Comrade File Cabinet. And the reason was this uh, character was simply building up files, working to uh, establish a bureaucracy. And this bureaucracy was, like Stalin, averse to taking risks, extremely conservative in terms of its conservation of its position, of its power. Well, Stalin took over. Then when he and the bureaucracy, made up of the young flunkies in every branch of the Soviet regime, had consolidated their hold, they moved against the professional revolutionaries. Stalin did this because the nomenclatura, says Voslensky, demanded it. It was a very popular move with them. So you had in the 30s the purges of the old line Bolsheviks because they had to be cleared out, they and all their relatives and all their flunkies, to make way for the bureaucracy to have all the positions of power. So there was a steady house cleaning, one purge after another. And the world kept wondering, says Voslensky, what was the reason for all of this? And he said it was very simple. It consolidated Stalin's power with the bureaucracy. It made him certain of his power because now they were all in it together. They didn't want idealists. They didn't want professional revolutionaries. And while they are eager to conquer the world, it is in order to extend their power, not because of any Marxist ideology. Their goal is power. Voslensky makes the statement that Solzhenitsyn previously had made, namely, that there are no true believers in Marxism in the Soviet Union. Marxism is the convenient tool for the seizure of power by the nomenclatura. Well, he says the goal thus is not property, it is power. And he goes on to describe the nomenclatura as the ex exploiting class, the privileged class, the dictatorship. And he says this nomenclatura has a fanatical demand for submission. 
They do not have the slightest interest in belief. They don't care whether you or anyone else believes in Marxism or in communism or socialism. Submission is the key. Marxism, you pay lip service. So, he says, he has lived in the West and as well as the Soviet Union until fairly recently. And he said, in the West, I have met convinced communists, but not in the Soviet Union. Well, he says that when Stalin died, the nomenclatura had a problem. It was settled before long in that any threats in terms of a strong person who might think at all independently of the nomenclatura were eliminated, they felt, when Khrushchev was eliminated. Then they got the staid bureaucrat, Brezhnev, and with him they were very, very happy. Brezhnev represented everything that the nomenclatura regards as excellent. He was strictly a man geared to defending and furthering the power of the nomenclatura. The chosen successor, popular with everyone up and down the line, was Chernenko, because Chernenko represented the bureaucracy par excellence, a non-entity who never did a good job in any office he held, was a bungler throughout his career, except that he was loyal to the nomenclatura, to the bureaucracy. And this is what they want. However, a problem intervened in the name of Andropov. Andropov represented uh, someone with a little initiative, with some ability. And one of the things that happened was that uh, when Andropov was with the KGB, an accident took place of a highly placed associate of Brezhnev. It sent shockwaves throughout the bureaucracy. Was it an accident? It was the first time a communist had died in a car accident. And so they had trouble coping with the fact. Had it been engineered? Well, two or three other accidents took place. And whether the people were nervous or too drunk, no one dared surmise or express an opinion as to what happened because they were afraid behind it all was Andropov. The KGB was responsible. So, at that point, Andropov, who may or may not have done anything up to this point, moved against some very highly placed people close to Brezhnev for corruption. They were brought to trial. 
Well, corruption is a way of life. In fact, it is a crime in the Soviet Union to report corruption because you're then questioning the wisdom and infallibility of the bureaucracy, of the nomenclatura. But Andropov exposed the corruption of certain persons close to Brezhnev. And this put fear in everyone's heart. Everyone is guilty of corruption. Would Andropov move against them? And they were paralyzed as a result, and they named him the successor unanimously, although he previously did not have a ghost of a chance. Now, Andropov, in all of this, and there's a great deal of excellent material on Andropov, knew that he was a dying man. But, of course, in Soviet thinking, the only immortality is in the history books. And Andropov was determined to have that immortality. So he conspired to seize office, gained it, tried to help his friends as much as possible, and then died not too long after gaining power. And the nomenclatura breathed more easily, and Chernenko took power. And as Voslensky says, life is easier when you have a weak boss. And the preference of the nomenclatura is for weak men at the top, so that whether it is the army or the KGB or the party, weak men are increasingly coming to the top, with the result that the country is declining. The nomenclatura is not interested in production. It lives very well. And as he calls attention to over and over again, in his travels abroad, he has found that he can meet with heads of state and be appalled at their poverty as compared with someone who's in the uh, secondary echelon of the nomenclatura. Heads of state whose lifestyle seems embarrassing, it's so poor. And he's talking about the most powerful countries of the Western world. And he says the bureaucracy, including the secondary bureaucracy, lives better than the wealthiest capitalists and the most powerful heads of state in the Western world. And all they're interested in is increasing their power. They have no concern for the people. Whether they live or starve makes no difference to them. Now, when it comes to the relationship of the Soviet Union to the world, what he has to say is exceedingly important. He says the nomenclatura wants not war, but victory. Not in the least, he says, do they want war. They make a show of pugnacity to persuade the West that communism is 
preferable to catastrophe, that it is better to be read than dead. And he says, all their threats are only bluffs. The nomenclatura attacks only the weak, and especially when they make no show of resistance. So, he says, the West is stupid. The nomenclatura fears the strong. It kicks the timid, he says, and retreats from the weak. It remembers the Russian proverb that Lenin quoted, if you're given grasp, if you're beaten, run fast. This, he says, is the whole political wisdom of the nomenclatura. And our foreign policy is one of surrender. And it appalls him. All that's needed is a stand, and these incompetent bunglers will retreat. He believes, moreover, that the Soviet Union is going to collapse. Its ability to function is declining dramatically. There is increasing contempt within the Soviet Union for everything that the leadership represents. He says, in fact, that... Uh, the KGB now is uh, regarded <laughs> like a case of leprosy, so that uh, no one wants to uh, have any connection with KGB people. And I quote, interesting evidence of their psychological capitulation in the face of general aversion is provided by a method they use when they want to discredit someone. They simply spread the rumor that he is a KGB agent. Could there be better evidence of their, the KGB's, inferiority complex? Unquote. The KGB knows how it is regarded, so it can destroy someone within the party or outside the party simply by spreading the rumor that he is a KGB agent. And he does not see a trace of the infallibility and mythical astuteness ascribed to the KGB by credulous readers of the Western press. He sees the Western press as simply patsies used by the KGB. Thus, he sees that uh, there is a decline even in morale. In Stalin's time, the KGB walked about proudly, wearing uniforms, and very proud to brag of what they were doing and who they were. Now they try to conceal their association because people would shun them. So that, he says, you can never meet a KGB man socially whether it's outside the party or within the party, not even in the highest nomenclaturist circles. The only persons, he says, who do not avoid the KGB are public prosecutors and magistrates. So, he says that the whole situation is one of 
a growing disrespect and contempt, and he sees the whole thing is collapsing. The future is one of many Chernenkos, and all the while we in the West ascribe to them brilliance and wisdom and astuteness and courage and power that is non-existent. Well, now to another book of a totally different sort, entitled The Cathedral Builders, which I do not believe is in print any longer. It was published in 1980. Uh, no, it was reprinted in 83 in England. The author is a Frenchman, Jean Gimpel, G-I-M-P-E-L. Just a couple of things out of it. Uh, he speaks, and as a Frenchman, naturally, uh, he is somewhat pro-French Revolution, so he doesn't want to call too much attention to the destruction caused by the French Revolution, but all the same, where the cathedrals are concerned, he says, the damage caused by the French Revolution of 1789 cannot compare with a barbarous destruction of the 17th century and, above all, the 18th. Any inventory of the devastation of the 18th century would run to volumes. The 18th century saw itself as having the monopoly of good taste, medieval bad ta taste, or gothic as it was then called, deserved only the demolition man's hammer. Then again, something that I've called attention to more than once, but I think this is well put, And I quote, For the first time in history, Renaissance writers extolled the personal qualities of authors and painters, and this resulted in an excessive deification, the consequences of which can still be felt today. The Renaissance invented the idea of the artist. The medieval intellectual, for his part, practically never wrote about specifically aesthetic matters. If he discussed what we choose to call art, it was from a theological or philosophical point of view. Certainly, to our knowledge, medieval writers mention neither the sculptors which we admire so much, nor their makers, though these were not quite as anonymous as some people would have us believe. With regard to terminology, it must be pointed that the avoidance here of the word artist is entirely deliberate. It adds nothing to the glory of the cathedral builders, and its present-day meaning was fundamentally alien to the spirit of the Middle Ages. It was not until 1762 that the French Academy's dictionary mentioned the word artiste with a meaning which we understand today." Unquote. Now, before I go on to another subject, let me just jump back to another aspect of the nomenclatura. I think this book is very important in terms of the Western world. 
not only for what it says about the Soviet Union, but for what it says about the potentiality for the West. Now, Voslensky never touches on it. But when you read the book, you're going to see parallels to what's happening in London, in Paris, in Washington, D.C., in the state capitals, and elsewhere. Last night, Dorothy and I had the pleasure with, of uh, dining with one of you, Dan Maxwell, a mining engineer who lives in uh, New Mexico, Arizona, and Colorado when he isn't traveling around in terms of his work. And Dan was telling us of the fact that the mining industry in the United States is dying. Some gold mines are going to go under. Zinc and gold alone probably will survive. The others are going under because our bureaucracy is destroying them. It is also doing everything to build up mining in third world countries, in various foreign countries, and also in the Soviet Union. Another thing that Dan told us was one of the ways this has been done, something that Otto has called attention to more than once. Yesterday afternoon, before Dan came over and we had dinner together, he was at the Sonora Mine, about 22 miles or so uh, south of us. Now, the mine was supposed to be, it's a gold mine, in operation this past month, December of 84. They hope now it'll be December of 85 when they are able to begin operation. Now, they were spending millions of dollars in terms of environmental protection. But the delay is because another $15 million worth of work is required. They're out in the country to avoid any problems uh, to neighbors. They bought up the two or three adjoining places. Now, this is mountain and hill country. There's no problem with close neighbors. They are still required, in terms of noise pollution, to keep their trucks from running at night. So they can't have an around-the-clock operation. Of course, if you live in a city, the trucks are going to move at night, and the garbage trucks operated by the city will. But private industry out in the country where there are no neighbors cannot operate its trucks at night. Now, this is the American nomenclatura at work. We have many states that are very rich, but combined with state and federal regulations, we are enriching the world and not using our own resources. For example, Montana is a coal-rich and oil-rich state, mineral-rich. It isn't being developed because even in terms of any common sense, it could be and be very rich, 
in terms of any common-sense ecological requirements. But the laws are so stringent, it's killing development. And the tax laws, at the same time, are killing ranching in Nevada, the main industry. The ranchers cannot hold their own. California may see the death of farming. Now, we're the breadbasket of the United States here in California. A lot of foreign countries depend upon us. We provide so much of the food of the United States that if you sat down and listed the food products, you would find a very large number, 90% of the supplies from California, very great number, over 75%. And when you take in 50% and over, then you begin to realize the importance of California. This is why it has been stated with good grounds that if California farming could be shut down by someone like Chavez, within a week there'd be food rationing across the United States. So what's happening now? Well, when I was a boy, farmers had their water projects. They were, uh, one might say, four-horse affairs because they were built with uh, teams of horses building small dams and uh, ditches and whatnot. State and federal agencies have taken over. And now we have the insane demand that farmers, and a move towards this, be charged the same rate for their irrigation water as city people pay for their tap water. That will put the farmers out of business. It could happen. Well, one of the things that led to it was the change in the voting pattern in the states. It used to be that this county, for example, a mountain county, which begins in the foothills and goes up to the high Sierras, had a senator. But the Supreme Court destroyed that. So now we share a senator with any number of counties, and urban areas dominate. So that the interests of land, the protection of land from the perspective of users, no longer exists. So that mountain areas are still exploited, but they're exploited by cities. Cities can move in and take their water. Cities command the votes. So instead of preventing exploitation, we are creating it through statist actions. Well, I didn't mean to go into that, but the point is that what Dan Maxwell was telling us about at the Sonora mine, a gold mine, is happening all over the country. And for most minerals, it's wiping out the mining companies. And that Dan expects a number of major mining companies to go under before the end of 1985. 
I forget how much he said the Sonora mine will have spent in development before it can begin, but uh, I believe it was uh, close to a hundred million before they can start producing. Some of it was necessary. A large amount was unnecessary. The nomenclatura in Washington, Sacramento, and the state capitals of most states is busily destroying American productivity. It is not foreign competition. It is the regulations that are unreasonable, that are beyond any honest ecological concern, that are destroying us. Well, now on to uh, still another book. This is uh, by John Benson, B-E-N-S-O-N, The Penny Capitalists, A Study of 19th Century Working Class Entrepreneurs. Published in 1983 by the Rutgers University Press, New Brunswick, New Jersey. An interesting book deals with the English uh, penny capitalists. And the point the author makes, if we go back and look at the uh, working conditions of the very poor working men, in England, coal miners and the like. It's easy to say how bad their condition was, and it was not good, but it doesn't give us the entire economic fact. These people were engaged on the side, or their wives and children were engaged in what he calls penny capitalism. It might be no more than uh, growing a great deal of vegetables in the garden and selling that, doing odd jobs in the neighborhood, taking in washing, and so on. So, he says, we cannot uh, get the real facts of the economy unless we realize how resourceful a percentage of the working classes were anything to add to money. In fact, uh, he cites some amusing examples of this. He says, when the wife of a fisherman living in Aqueduct Street, Preston, left him in the early years of this century, he put out a big notice, half a bed to let. <laughs> Interesting, too, these people were envied by those around them who didn't have the initiative to do it, so that there was a great deal of glee on the part of the less provident when any of these working men who were penny capitalists failed in their efforts. Their envy was not directed against the rich. It was directed against any of their own number who tried to get ahead, who tried to better themselves. 
Moreover, he makes the interesting point that their activities did bolster industrialization. They helped restructure the economy. They met many needs. They were the entrepreneurs in one area after another, starting uh, little activities, and then other people saw the potentiality and took over, or else occasionally they would themselves increase. So that uh, there was a great deal of activity, a fair percentage of the working class working to better themselves. Moreover, he strikes at the myth of poor but honest because he said these people, since they were fly-by-night operators in many cases, they were here with a stand or going from door to door to sell something, were not averse to dishonesty. It was easier for them to get away with it. So that... Uh, when, for example, they would go from door to door and uh, sell coal. What many would do would be, and this was especially common during the course of a strike at Pendleton in 1911, they would break up bricks, put pitch on them and blacklead them, put them in a bag with some good coal on top, and sell them for a good price lower than the market price, but with coal at that time harder to get because of the strike, they would find people ready to buy. So he makes it clear that uh, poverty doesn't make a man necessarily moral. It's a very interesting book. And uh, indicates that Economic historians have only seen a small part of economic reality. Well, now on briefly to another. The sixth volume of The Image of War, 1861 to 1865, came out, published by Doubleday in the late months of 1984. It's a $40 book. The whole set of six volumes is the most complete collection of photographs of the war that has, I believe, ever been collected. Uh, both the prelude uh, to the conclusion in 1865. And uh, the text is sometimes excellent, sometimes just a repetition of known facts. Uh, there are uh, some interesting uh, pictures in this one, by the way. I'd always wondered what uh, General Jefferson C. Davis, the northern general you remember I talked about recently, looked like. Well, there's a picture of this character. <laughs> in uh, this sixth volume on page 150. He probably is in the other volumes, too, but I didn't bother to check there since I uh, was looking at this one and reading it. I was particularly interested to watch for him. 
Well, the thing that comes through in this volume, as well as in the January 1985 issue of Civil War Times, is the comparative strength of the North and the South. The incredible poverty of the South by comparison to the North. And I'm talking about poverty in terms of the means of carrying on a war. But even without that, the South did not have, apart from the wealthy families, the wealth of the North. It didn't have the industrial potential for waging war. It didn't have the means of equipping an army. And it's sad and yet amazing that for four years, in terms of sheer courage and determination and remarkable uh, leadership from some men like Lee and Jackson, the South was able to frustrate the North until finally the sheer industrial power and equipment and numbers of men overwhelmed the South. In this issue of the Civil War Times, there is a picture even more dramatic than uh, any of those in the sixth volume of uh, Image of War. It is of a couple of Confederate prisoners. Their clothes in tatters, barefoot, no uniform. Uniforms began to disappear very early in the war. They couldn't be supplied. And to think that a war was waged with men who were sometimes near starving, or barefoot even in winter, and poorly armed. It's truly amazing, a very remarkable fact. I think some of the pictures I often see glorifying the Confederate forces are very, very wrong-headed because they portray them, for example, Jeb Stuart and his forces galloping in magnificent uniforms, braided hats, and so forth. Some had those things at the beginning of the war, some officers. But very few Confederates had them after a while. It doesn't convey the real facts of the war or what the soldiers endured. If you take Afghanistan and lengthen it, and increase the number of men, you begin to get a picture of what went on at that time. Well, now on to something else. This is 1985. In August of 1985, Chalcedon will be 20 years old.
So we have an anniversary coming up. Our work today is very different than when we began the first issue of the Chalcedon Report was one page mimeographed and it went out to 60 people and it continued after that two, three, four pages and has since then of course become worldwide in its readership and we get responses from all over the world. And now we have, for example, apart from a number of men here, uh, resident, uh, we have uh, men elsewhere in this country working. We have Jean-Marc Bertou in Switzerland. We do give some help to the Scandinavian Christian University, and so on. And we do it on uh, a shoestring financially and uh, with no financial manager or uh, promoter or anything. We really don't have any kind of operation except an amateur one when you come to the mechanics of our operation. We hoped we'd get enough by the end of uh, 1984 to buy some material, equipment, to automate our mailing because we'd like to have machinery to uh, stuff uh, the envelopes and process them, and it'll take forty-five, fifty thousand to get all we need. Well, we didn't get anything to do that with. So each month, it's uh, Otto and Ann Scott, Dorothy and myself, and Mark and Darlene Rushdoony, and uh, Grace and Craig Flanagan, and all the others sitting around the tables and uh, stuffing envelopes and putting on the labels. And uh, that's how we get it out, with two, three days of work with all of us pitching in. And uh, our office work, similarly, it, it's done because, uh, well, Chuck Wagner uh, handles a great deal of it. Uh, Dorothy and Grace and Darlene uh, spend a few hours every day doing it, but that's it. We're very much an amateur operation. Uh, we often get uh, letters that tell us what monsters we are and how evil we are. I glance at those letters and they go into the wastebasket. I don't want any of the women or anybody else to see them, and they're usually stupid. Uh, those things don't bother us. When you're doing the kind of work we are, when we're pioneering, and we've got lots of imitators, but we're the pioneers in this field. We were the first Christian think tank in the United States. Uh, you expect criticism, and it's no problem. You don't... Uh, 
do any independent thinking or try to extend the frontiers of men's minds without getting kickbacks. But what has been our major problem, apart from the lack of any adequate financial structure, so that uh, we operate in terms of cash only, if we don't have it, when uh, we wait. We don't pay ourselves. Well, our biggest, most painful problem comes when uh, we travel, and I encounter this all the time. And when it happens too many times on a trip, I come back sick at heart and almost determined not to take any more trips and to meet such people again. Because people will come up and say how much our work means to them, that it has changed my life. And uh, when the Chalcedon Report arrives, I have my wife call me at the office and leave word with my secretary that it has arrived if I'm not there close by, and I will dash home for lunch on that day so I can read it right away. And I know that they've never sent a dollar to help us out. And it, I wonder about that. And that's what hurts us. We just find that amazing that people can uh, be that way, that there is no gratitude. Gratitude is more than words. So that's the painful aspect of our work. Now, we know that God is going to reward us, but we feel that we've failed when people don't make their faith work. And obviously they don't. There's something incredible about that. Well, so much for that. Now, on to something else. Uh, yesterday, Dorothy and I were in Modesto to take care of some things. And uh, we stopped, of course, at a bookstore. In fact, two, three of them, three of them, and spent some money. At least I did, and Dorothy got a few things herself. And one that I picked up with more than a little pleasure is one which I first read, The End of the Fifties. It was by Jean Renoir, entitled Renoir, My Father, about the artist. Well, I'm very partial to the artist Renoir. He was a very sunny character, a man of great humility. His theology was somewhat uh, muddled and uh, bad, very bad. But uh, he was a remarkable man. He was remarkable because of the way he viewed life and his work and himself. And uh, he made a statement that his son used to sum up his father's life work. 
he said, and I quote, Renoir, this was when he died. And in his last years, the paintbrush had to be tied to his hand because his fingers were too arthritic to hold it. But he was painting up to a few hours of his death. But his son concludes by saying, Renoir had succeeded in fulfilling the dream of his whole life, to create riches with modest means. To create riches with modest means. Now that's what we've tried to do at Calcedon. Our means are very modest. But we've tried to create riches for a world of reconstruction with modest means. One of the things I hope to do when I next go to Sacramento, I saw a book there last month and just didn't have the money to get it. I think it was a book that cost about 40 or $50. It's a new book. It's about Renoir. And it has a photograph of him sitting painting, his fingers permanently gnarled and twisted and useless with a paintbrush tied to his hand, ready to work. Magnificent. That's the way we should all be. Ready to work no matter what. And I want that picture because if I ever get down in the dumps over what some of these so-and-so's say to me, I'll remember Renoir. And all of us, by the way, can create wealth out of modest means. In fact, Dorothy and I were talking about this on the way home, driving home yesterday late in the afternoon. And Dorothy brought this up, and I think it's wonderful. She said not only Renoir, but every young couple can create enormous wealth and the most marvelous thing in the world with just the tools at home. They can make a baby, and there's nothing more wonderful. Now, go to it then, <laughs> those of you who are within the age range. You can create wealth out of modest means but be sure to get a production license first. <laughs> I don't want anyone blaming me for incitement to uh, production without a license. Well, our time is up. It's been a pleasure to be with you again. God bless you all. I'll be with you again in two weeks.